we are continuing on in our study of 1 Corinthians 15 this evening entitled New Life. And we've been focusing on the power and the truth of the resurrection these last few weeks as we've walked through this letter. And tonight our sermon's title, uh, this specific term, uh, title for this sermon is New Life Even in Danger. And uh, over the last three weeks that we've been walking through this chapter, we have seen how the Apostle Paul has given clear evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So clear evidence that this was an actual, verifiable, historical event. Not just a fairy tale, not a fairy tale, not a myth, not a legend, not just a good story that we've made up to kind of fit things together, but an actual event. And and, uh, we're going to see this evening that the resurrection is central to the message of the gospel. And, uh, and so to, to start off tonight, let's look back and review for just a moment before we dive into tonight's uh, passage. Look back to the beginning of our chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes these words to the church. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I passed on to you what was most important. <clears throat> I love to eat cupcakes. <laughs> I just like cupcakes. Um, and if I'm really honest, there's not really any cake that's off limits in, in, my, in, in my repertoire. I just love cu- cu- uh, cake, to be honest. Uh, and my wife thinks it's funny. We've had this ongoing debate about the method, the best method to eat a cupcake. And in my mind... The most important part of the cupcake is the cake itself. It's all about getting down to the cake. I mean, the icing, the icing, the frosting is good. It's not bad. It's not like I toss it away. But it, in my mind, it's just something extra on top that I have to endure in order to get down to the good stuff, the cake. And I have heads that are nodding and, and, and heads that are shaking in here, and that's okay. Uh, but I, I, it feels like we often treat the resurrection that way, that it is just the icing on the cake when it is actually really centri- uh, central to the message. That, you know, it's great, but it's not necessarily the main thing. But the resurrection of Jesus isn't just something extra. It is central to the message of the gospel. Yeah. This is the message of the gospel in a nutshell, that God created all things perfectly, that we in the beginning, in the garden, messed it up. We willfully chose to go our way instead of God's way, and we've been doing it every day since. And as Mark said a couple weeks ago, we've been rebelling against God, that that's called sin. And, And it's not just that we do sinful things, but it's who we are. Our very nature is sinful. It's our, it's in us that we will always want to be contrary and counter to the ways of God. And the consequences and penalty for both of those acts, the acts of sin and our, our rebellious nature is death. But instead, God, instead of just wiping us out and destroying humanity, made a way for us to be right with him. And he did that by sending Jesus, the perfect one, who, who came to the earth, lived as one of us, walked perfectly through this life without rebelling, without sinning, and he died a substitutionary death on the cross. And we so often stop there in our thinking. 
But that's not the end of the story. Paul writes to the church in Romans uh, 6, uh, Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The actual earnings, the actual wages of our sin, what we get when we sin is death. Death is what we get. The resurrection of Jesus is essential to the story of the gospel because Jesus proved that he undid the actual wages of our sin, the actual effects of our sin. He undid that. It's not just he forgave us and made things right, but he undid the effects of our sin so that death is no more. To demonstrate that he actually accomplished the mission God sent him to do, he undid the curse of death itself. That's, that's pretty good news today. That's our hope today. So that's where we've been walking through the last few weeks, and now we can turn to tonight's passage. Uh, and this chapter, we've, we've seen how the Apostle Paul has walked through lots of reasons for why the resurrection happened. We saw him walk through like theological reasons. He looked at historical reasons. We looked at, uh, Andrew looked at how the, all these eyewitnesses were, we talked about, you know, saw Jesus. And tonight we're looking at uh, ex- experiential, that Paul argues from his own personal experience for, for the resurrection of Jesus. And so my objective this evening is to show you from this passage that there is a problem and there's a potential danger that we're all susceptible to. But that's okay because there is also a very clear remedy to that problem. And that remedy is reminding our hearts to continually not just believe in our minds and kind of give lip service to truth, but actually walk in the habit of practicing the truth in our day, daily life. And if we'll do that, we will see three things. We'll see freedom, we'll see fullness of joy, and we'll see a faithful life, faithful living. So that's where we're headed. That's your, that's your trailer for the film tonight. Uh, so we can, I hope that's not like just the best parts. Some films do that, show you all the best parts of the film and the trailer. I hate that when they do that because then it's like a letdown, but uh, that's okay. We're going to move on. God's word is good, and that's what's most important. Let's look at our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 29. It says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I, am, I, as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? What good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Let me pray for us this evening. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth, the power of it. We pray right now that you would anoint our hearts and our minds to understand it, to to think clearly about the things that we're going to be looking at. Help us to have wisdom and understanding and then application of that truth tonight in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So right off the start, I want to examine something that could easily distract us from the whole main point of this passage uh, look at verse 29 again. It says, Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? That's interesting. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? 
uh, I just want to confront and say, I mean, say up front this evening that this is a verse that's extremely confusing. And it has been confusing for the better part of two millennia. The church has been talking about this verse. Theologians, commentators, not like from like 100 years ago, like from 200 years after Jesus is around and Paul's around, they've been like, what is Paul saying in that passage? And first Corinthians 20. This has been talked about for centuries. And yet we still don't quite know what, what this is all about. I'll just say that up front. I actually read this week where a guy went back and compiled all these theories, and he counted 215 separate theories as to what this one verse meant. And I thought that was hilarious that he spent one, there were all that many theories, but somebody actually took the time to count them all. Uh, But there's actually a benefit for us as a church family to talk about verses like this that we don't fully understand. And the benefit is, is, is it causes us to ask a larger question. What do you and I do when we come to passages in Scripture that we don't understand from a surface level? When they seem unclear in Scripture, when they seem confusing, what do we do? Often, my tendency is to pull my phone out, go to Google, and say, Google, (laughs) what does that? But I want to present, I think, a better option for us tonight. A better thing to do would be just to take a moment and consider something else. First, look at what the context of the passage says. Context. We've, we've said this a whole lot of times in the past around here, that context is the key to understanding the Bible. It's the key to understanding God's Word. So what is the context of the passage? What, uh, what's the context of the human author as they were writing? What were their circumstances? What, what about the context of the hearers or the recipient? Or all the circumstances that were going on the day. Context helps inform. It helps give, uh, make the way clear for, for any kind of distractions. But there are a few places in Scripture like this one that, uh, where it doesn't really feel like context gives the full answer. But however, here's, here's what context will help us uh, to, to figure out. Let's kind of work through this exercise together. One, context tells us by how quickly, if we can go back to that verse, Jeremy, sorry, thank you, by quickly Paul mentions this and then moves on, that this was not a confusing thing, it was not a mysterious thing, but both Paul and this church knew exactly what he was talking about. He didn't just drop this weird thing into a sentence and then move on and never come back to it again, but clearly both Paul and this church knew what he's talking about. Context, through that very first word, otherwise, tells us that this is not the main point of the whole passage. This is a transition word. And and in every modern translation we have, that there's either the word otherwise or something very very similar to it is is there. And even though we don't fully understand, the context helps us. Context tells us that this isn't the main point. It's pointing to something bigger, a bigger theme in this passage. So while we may still wonder what this fully means, The context, even what we've already seen, tells us it's okay. We don't have to stress, even though we don't know the whole meaning behind this, we don't have to stress because it's not the main point of the passage. But here's what we don't, here's what we do know. This verse doesn't mean, uh, it it doesn't mean like some in history, like like Mormons believe that uh, who have taken this to be a literal practice that should be untake, undertaken is like being baptized by proxy for someone else who's already dead, literally, 
And that's really concerning because we just don't know what all this is about. Uh, but let's be clear. Paul doesn't offer an affirmation. It's not like he's affirming this, uh, this as a practice, as a habit. In fact, look at how he phrases this. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Not only does he not affirm this as a practice, but Paul actually distances himself. And, and, and we, could, we could go on and on talking about this, but one, one last thing, and then we'll move on to the passage as a whole. We also know that this isn't a practice, the idea of being baptized for the dead as a proxy kind of substitute kind of thing, because of what Paul writes in other places in Scripture, which is totally opposite to this, uh, what, what, what we would, how we could translate this. So, for instance, Romans chapter 10. Look at Romans 10, verses 8 through 10. The last half of 8 says, This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, <clears throat> excuse me, resulting in salvation. If, if salvation, if this salvation, trusting in God, being made right with God, comes through confession and trusting with the heart, your whole heart, in the work of Christ, then how would someone who is dead do that? How, how could someone do that for someone else? You can only do that for yourself. You cannot do that as a proxy. So I, I won't keep going on. We'll, we'll, we'll move on because I really don't want to spend a lot of time. There's a whole lot of other things that are more important we need to talk about. The bottom line is this. Um, one thing this verse does is it conveys yet another argument for the resurrection. Either way, Paul is using this as an, as an argument for the resurrection, even if we don't fully understand what... Uh, the argument actually is. Um, and we need to remember this, that it's the resurrection that's the focal point of the passage, not what we see in this verse. Okay, now we've looked at verse 29, and, we, and we're free to move on to look at the rest of the passage. And so I want to come back to this idea that, that there is a danger that we all face, <clears throat> a problem. The problem Paul expresses here in this passage centers around what happens when you and I fall into the trap that, that, um, of, of not actually living out the hope that we have through the resurrection. Uh, as followers of Jesus, we've been given an extraordinary gift, a huge, amazing gift. Not only have we been granted the gift of being made right with God through Jesus so that we're now free to relate to God and know Him, that he's knowable and he reveals more and more of himself to us. But a huge part of taking the next step of being in relationship with Jesus is actually walking out that truth. I was walking this weekend, so I don't know why. I've got my walking pole still going. <laughs> Every day, walking out the truth. We move from confession of truth to practically demonstrating that in our lives. Little by little, growing in our faithfulness, growing in our discipline, growing in our consistency. We are now to live in freedom from sin that he's purchased from us. Not just believe it's true, but actually live in the truth. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad you're with me. Thank you. <laughs> Living with a perspective that really lifts our eyes above the, the, the circumstances up to the horizon to see a glorious truth that's ahead of us, eternal life. I really enjoy getting out into the hills, um, but there are moments out on the hills that aren't always fun, <laughs> like when you are steadily 
trudging uphill through a long, steep ascent towards a summit, yet you can't actually see the summit. You know it's there in your mind, but you can't see it. And in those moments, I feel like I, I, I revert into a habit of looking down because in my mind, if I just look at my next step, it's, it's easier than looking at the pain of, I know that's not the summit and that, that really hurts because that's a long way away and that's really high up there. So if I just look down, but, but that's painful. That's tiring, it's taxing. But there are other moments when the reality of what's up ahead is revealed that it is a glorious sight that is ahead. It's still an, an, an ascent. It's still uphill. It's still a taxing climb. But the unbelievable view motivates you to keep walking. It spurs you on to keep walking. It fires you up. And, and, you, and you feel a little excited on the inside because even though I might be tired and fatigued, I see what's ahead and I want to keep walking towards that. We have a truth that is glorious. And we have to look up from our circumstances to behold the glorious truth that's ahead of us. And, and, and we have to understand that Jesus conquered death. So, so we now have the freedom to see that this life is not the, the, the main play. It's not the act of the play. It, this is just the starter of the meal. It, it, it's just kind of the, the trailer to the film. It, it's the beginning point. The actual main bit, the, the filet mignon that's coming, is actually the eternal life ahead. The main point of our life is what's to come in the future, in eternity future. Yet we all fall into this trap of thinking, well, my days here that are few on this earth are the main thing. And we live as if this is the main thing. And that causes us to live in fear. It causes us to value other things than the things that God wants us to value. But if we'll lift our eyes, it brings tremendous freedom as we think about the purpose of this life that in, in the manner in which we should live it. Meaning that we live this life not for ourselves, but for God and his purposes. And that kind of shift, it changes everything about our perspectives. It changes everything about how we think about our, the totality of our life, about my family, my role in my family. My job and how I approach my job, is it a just get through it or is it actually about something greater? How I approach the idea of success, what does success mean? Well, those are totally different things if I'm thinking about eternity ahead or if I'm just thinking about this life or money or material things or, or, or a whole host of other things. But the danger is that our sinful flesh so easily forgets. Even me saying that now, the danger will be tomorrow morning for us to wake up and to forget this truth. That's our, our flesh so easily forgets. If this wasn't the danger, Paul wouldn't have, to have had to make the case that he makes in our passage. Look at verses 30 to 32. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. From these three verses, I just want to expound on why this problem of not walking out the truth of the resurrection is a really big deal. It's not just a, a, a preference. It's actually a really big deal. Because when you and I choose not to walk in the truth and instead embrace the things of this world, you and I have become an obstacle to the gospel. 
that is devastating. Remember, uh, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, if you were with us at, at Holiday Club this summer, and even the last few years, we, we've used a definition for sin. Remember this definition, that sin is anything we think, we say, or we do that goes against God. And we, I love seeing all the kids say, sin is anything we think, we say, or we do that goes against God. When you and I sin, we are calling God a liar. We're saying that the freedom and satisfaction you promised is not good enough. It's not sufficient. Therefore, we're calling not just God, but the gospel a lie. We effectively are an obstacle to the truth. And when our actions don't align with what we see and we hold to be true, we're living out a life that says through our actions that we are opposed to the gospel. And that's a problem, obviously. I was talking to, to Mark this week about this passage. And... Uh, I'm just kind of unpacking all that I wanted to share. And I explained how so often in our lives, we can look at the atoning work of Jesus, that he paid for our sins, and we can, we can enjoy that. But sometimes we get into this mode where we just kind of flip the page too quickly. It's like, yeah, 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 I'm, I messed up, and I'm flipping the page because I want to move on. And, it, and it's almost like we don't even re fully recognize, and even just taking a moment to recognize, I just, I mean, Jesus purchased my sin, whatever it is that I just did, I mean, Jesus purchased that. I, he was on the cross for that. And we can just move on without even we think about it. And I'm not advocating for any of us sitting in shame or sitting in guilt or being ensnared by those things that's really unhelpful. But I do want to pose the question for my own heart and for your heart. Do you recognize how much of an obstacle that your sin is to the gospel. First and foremost, it's an obstacle to your own heart. It's an obstacle to your own heart. We either wake up preaching the gospel to ourselves or we, reach up, we wake up preaching an anti-gospel to ourselves. One or the other. It, it, can't, it can't be anything in between. It's testifying to your own heart that God is a liar, that he's not sufficient, or that he's the sufficient one. That No, no, no. It, he's the one who's better than everything else. And if your sin is seen by others, then we have then become an, a, test, a, a testimony of those things that, that God is a liar. God is not enough. And I don't know about you. I don't want that to be my story. I've noticed over the years that there are really two situations where all of this plays out most often. And, and these are not the only situations, but they're just the most frequent situations where we choose to believe this lie and we choose to willingly disobey God. And, and one of those two uh, situations is found in the ways that we choose to cope with stress or hardship or difficulty or, or tragedy in our lives. And the other is the way we seek to find satisfaction and fulfillment, not just in the moment, but really as, as a, in our whole life. How, what, are, what are the things we go to? And though on the surface those two things may not seem like they're linked, if you, you kind of look underneath, you see that the motivations are very, very similar and they're linked together. Um, but we, we have a natural bent, thanks to our sinful natures, toward coping with stress and hardship and, and difficulty and heartache in ways that are not healthy and are not God-honoring. Are you aware 
of the propensity for this in your own life? Is in a rough season of life, can you think of behaviors you go to or you revert to that you do to cope with stress and difficulty? Can you think of times where in stressful situations you've turned to something that is counter to the way God would have you to live in order to attempt to alleviate the stress and of that given situation? It's almost like uh, if, if you've been around a toddler, a toddler many times, they call it the terrible twos or in different phases, will throw themselves down in a tantrum in order to try to manipulate the situation to get their needs met. It's about manipulating to try to get their needs met. And then on, on the outside, you're like, my goodness, what are you doing? Don't you know how to act? But in the, they're just trying to do something extreme in their minds to try to, even if it's not rational, we do the same thing. We do crazy things to try to do what we think is going to meet our needs mm-hmm. instead of doing what God calls us to do so often. Uh, and it could be as simple as getting angry, like we see a toddler, in traffic or, or lashing out at someone for, for any kind of situation. Uh, it could be something like cult- that the culture says is benign, like binging some kind of media for days on end thinking that's going to fill me up instead of the things of God. It could be turning to substance to cope and numb the pain of what we're feeling. And there's a whole other uh, list that goes on. But second, what do you do to turn, uh, what do you turn to in order to find ultimate fulfillment? Is it Christ or something else? It could be turning to another person and trying to find satisfaction in a relationship in unhealthy ways instead of finding it in Christ. It could be the pursuit of wealth, like we've already talked about, status, respect from others. Fundamentally, all these things are why we sin. We're looking for ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in broken things. And we seek those other things. And we are effectively saying that we don't believe God. And at that point, we've become an obstacle to the gospel. One other thing, and before we get to the good news, because I know this is heavy. And it's been the last couple weeks as I've wrestled through this uh, I have really been just examining my own heart and saying, my goodness, how do we as sinful people preach messages like this? Because this is so applicable to my own heart. But one other way this plays out is when we choose to be silent about all of these things and not walk alongside brothers and sisters in church community together. Whether it's trying to find fulfillment or trying to cope, I'm talking about isolation from the local church. Instead, leaning into other sources of community. And that's exactly what Paul's referencing here in verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Though we are meant to live missional lives amongst others who are not followers of Jesus, we're always meant to see the church community, the church family as the gift that it is to be the source of encouragement and support that we need, the source of accountability that we need. This group of people is a gift to us. But consider this. If you turn to other sources of community that are not rooted in Christ, how can you expect to be given truth? What's the basis of that community built on? Yes, the church may be flawed, but that's because it's made up of us. Flawed people. We're all broken people. Uh, 
But we, it is built on, it's rooted in the truth of who God is and who he's calling us to be. So here's one other thing to consider, one last thing. Paul says not only does bad company corrupt, but in verse 34 he says something else about those who are not followers of Jesus. He says they are ignorant about God, and I say that to your shame. Now, ignorant is a bad connotation, but that's not fault. He's not finding fault. He's not demeaning them. He's saying this, that it's because you haven't worked to combat the ignorance that's in their hearts with the truth of the gospel. You've not given them a gospel witness, and that's because you're coping with difficult situations the wrong way, and you're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. So stop it. Stop sinning. Stop looking for that in other places other than Christ. Literally, he says, come to your senses. Wake up from this. Stop being an obstacle to the gospel. Don't settle for brokenness when there's so much, something so much better. And to drive all of this home, I love how he, he quotes from Isaiah in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he's saying that this is the philosophy and the life outlook for the one who doesn't actually believe God and in the resurrection of Jesus. And to illustrate that, he quotes from Isaiah 22, where God has pronounced judgment through the prophet Isaiah upon the, the kingdom of Judah. And he says that because of all of your, your turning away from me and, and this long history of doing this, I'm going to allow the Assyrian army to come in and kill many of you to devastate your kingdom, to take away uh, many of you into slavery, and to leave a very uh, small remnant behind in a land that's already been devastated. Many will be killed. And instead of repenting and asking God to relent, the people hear this news and they respond differently. They respond by saying these, these words. Well, I guess we better eat and drink because tomorrow we die, you know? The ESV study Bible on this verse, it says, it says this, Paul finds in this the perfect expression of an attitude that has no regard for deep and lasting realities. Living out this kind of outlook means you have abandoned any concern for the eternal. It's an absolute disregard for the permanency, permanency and eternality of God and His ways. I, uh, I really have enjoyed reading commentary by John Gill as I prepared for this. And John Gill is regarded as the foremost theologian of the Baptist theologian of the 18th century. And uh, he has a lot to say about this whole section, but I'll summarize because it's so long. You can go and find it for free online. It's pretty amazing. Um, for, this is what he says about this. That this was an audacious display because it basically said, we don't really believe this message from the prophet Isaiah. But even if it's true, we'll still seek to get our fill in earthly pleasure while we still can. Paul's basically making this connection to the Corinthian church to say that this is the same kind of disregard for God that the Corinthians were demonstrating through their attitude regarding the resurrection. And you know what? That's my attitude and your attitude too when we don't choose to live this out in our daily life. There is another way. There's a better way. Look at what Paul writes in verse 30. He says, Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
And I know that what we've heard so far has been all bad news. But thanks be to God, there is good news. Because I see here, this passage displays three effects that the truth of the resurrection has upon our lives. If we'll walk this out, there are three truths that we'll see really begin to affect our life and transform our life. And the first is freedom. Freedom. There is abundant, mind-blowing freedom when we completely wrap our hearts and our our minds around the truth of the resurrection and live in response to the resurrection. Paul says, if the resurrection isn't real, why do we put ourselves in danger? Why do we put our lives at risk? Why do we take the risks that we take? But the reality is that the resurrection is true. Paul is giving both a reason for his existence as well as an example to follow here. He's laying out the case through his example of a life that embraces the truth and walks it out in life practice. See, living out the hope of the resurrection means that you and I are free of the burdens that that a temporal and temporary mindset, uh, mindset shackle us with. If there is such a thing as eternal life with God, then we're free to face the things of this life without fear. You and I are free to make decisions that the world says are dangerous, risky, unnecessary for the sake of the gospel. We're free to say that everything in our lives can be used for the sake of the gospel, including our very lives themselves, like many of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine have testified to recently. Hope in Christ's resurrection frees us to embrace the totality of what life brings, especially when we face moments of risk and danger for the sake of the gospel. There is freedom. I hope we see that today. Secondly, we see the effect of the fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. When we live in light of this truth and in the freedom it brings, the object of our purpose grants freedom. Living for other things, whether it's security, wealth, or family, or children, whatever it is, there are limits to the joy that those things bring. Even those good things God give us, when we see them as the end, there is a limit to the joy they bring. But when we see God as the end, as the source of satisfaction, those things, the joy we get from them is maximized. So we see even greater joy by valuing God as the center of all things. Paul writes in verse 32, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, which, by the way, that's a crazy verse, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The point he's making is that the dead are raised. The, the dead are raised. So instead of trying to find satisfaction in the pleasures of this world, we find it in Christ. Christ has been raised. Therefore, there's great joy to be found in him and in his living. I want us to see this evening that this is not just about freedom, because freedom is good, and it's part of it, but it runs so much deeper. Not only are we free to face danger without fear, but now because of the resurrection, we can also find fulfillment. Fulfillment. I want to make the case that not only are we free, but that freedom has cleared the way for us to be fully satisfied in who God is. With no fear, when freedom takes away the fear, we see God, we behold Him, we run towards Him. We run towards Him. If we'll pursue Christ, because He lives right now, He reigns right now, we will find joy. 
We already talked about the wages of sin being death. Well, part of, of that is because sin brings separation from God. It, it brings separation from the one who actually is life. The one who's life, if we're separated from him, of course we're in death. John 14, Jesus is explaining, trying to explain this stuff to his disciples, and they don't get it. Like many times, we don't get it. In verse 5, the gospel, gospel writer says, Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to know the path that you should take in life? The path is not found in some kind of formula that you try to have for success. The, the path is found in a person, in Jesus. He's the way. The, you want to know the truth for life? Well, the truth is found in a person. It's found in Jesus you want to find life itself. It's not found in anything this world has. It's found in Jesus. Yeah. He said the, those three effects. The first is freedom. The second is fullness of joy. Finally, as we kind of wrap things up tonight, the third effect is faithful living. If we truly understand the reality that we now live in, we will see everything in its proper proportion. We'll see the right priorities. That's why Paul writes about embracing danger in life-threatening situations. Look at 33 and 34. He says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. The reason he says that to their shame is that it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to strive toward living life as a response to being satisfied in God. So if we have freedom from fear of this life and it leads us to satisfaction of God, we then live in light of that, which then leads the faithful witness out before others. We work towards consistency. It's about trending. Is, is my life and your life trending toward consistency? Paul went so far to say that in verse 30, he faces danger every single day. And you may say, I'm not Paul. I, I'm not gifted like Paul. I'm not called to be Paul. And I just want to stop the conversation right there and say, God in his sovereignty knew you before you walked this earth. He knew your family. He knew your situation. He knew the day that each of us would be in. And he chose to put us right where we are. He knew a global pandemic would play out the way that it did and he put every single one of us right where we are. So are we embracing that? Are we seizing upon that? I have to tell you, I've been deeply convicted by this this week. And like I've been urging my own heart and my own mind, I want to urge you as well just to ask the question, what's the trend of my life? And this weekend... Uh, my friend Marvin and I were out for walking out in the hills for a couple of days, and I went back afterwards and was looking at the health app on my phone just to see how right, were the distances that it says we walked, and I was doing kind of a deeper dive to see, well, like six months, how much have I walked over the last year? And then we spent the last half of last year in America, so uh, we didn't do we did a whole lot of driving in America, not a whole lot of walking, and so the, the it's like this step ladder almost that goes up, but it's trending up. 
And that's the way our life in Christ should be. I'm not saying we're on the steady, we never, ever revert, ever kind of trajectory. Because the reality is we're all falling. We're going to stumble. We're all going to have seasons where we feel distant from God. But I'm advocating tonight that the trajectory, the trend, be upward. That's what God is calling us to be about. Our, our walk with Christ should be that way. But it takes intentionality and purpose. It doesn't just happen. Last week I listened to a sermon by John Piper and in it he was talking about consistency in, in, in the Christian life. And he said this, living the Christian life is like paddling a boat up a stream. When you stop paddling, it's not like you're simply sitting in one position stopped. There's such a thing as sitting still. There's no such thing as sitting still. We either keep moving forward or we're being swept backward. So let us be intentional to walk in this. Tonight, let us strive not to be an obstacle for the gospel, but to be a faithful witness to walk in the freedom that he offers. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, its power. Help us by your spirit to be disciplined, not for the sake of discipline, but for the sake of growing in our understanding of who you are and delighting in who you are. And may that filter into our life and play out in our life so that others can come to know you and make much of you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.